Hey there, welcome to SaaS Inbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, I'm Nadena, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Sumit, founder of Paquette, portfolio tracking and visualization tool. They're based in Germany, bootstrapped from day one, and were actually referred to me as the most exciting bootstrappers in town. So... <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for the invite. Um, yeah, happy to be here. Sure, anytime. So, uh, yeah, first things first. Uh, I mean, Paquette started uh, in a bit of a different way or like in a more indie hacker way for you. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the whole story, the inspiration behind the product and, yeah, how it was born? Yeah, sure. Um, I... I basically started uh, solving my own problem. I was um, starting to take care of my own finances, personal finances, because I, I I was in tech. I was a programmer. I earned a good salary, but everything went out the window. I had no savings and nothing. Um, I looked at other people, how they do it, how they, I don't know, buy houses and things like that. And I was thinking I, I'm doing something wrong. So I started uh, with taking care of my personal finances paying off debt, uh, saving, and then starting investing. When I started investing in ETFs, buying stocks and things like that, um, I wanted to track it. I'm a, I'm a front-end developer or I was a full-time front-end developer. I like dashboards. I like tracking stuff also for, you know, fitness and all. I think if you want to reach a goal, you need to track it um, and see progress and it motivates. So I wanted the same for my wealth building, basically, and my investments. So uh, I started my own little tool uh, or I, I, I programmed my own little tool to um, to track my specific strategy. And yeah, it was a side project, a hobby project. And I then opened it up and it basically started to gain some traction. I got more users and I tested how far I can push it. Obviously, I had a wish where, where it could go, but I honestly, I if you would have asked me when I started if, if it would get this big, I... I wouldn't have believed it. So I'm quite glad how it turned out so far. All right. Wonderful. That's quite a, you know, a usual already on, on this podcast. Like, how did you start it? You know, I wanted to solve my own problem. And instead of, you know, doing like normal people do, just give up, <laughs> you started building your own tool. So that's, that's super exciting. And yeah, it started as a side project. You also had a full-time job, but then you moved on like at what point did you decide that okay i'm i'm going to leave my job and and going to do it full time was the um company ramen profitable at this time or how long did it take to get there ramen profitab profitability so <clears throat> for me it was like i had a little bit of a let's say higher living standard because i i earned very well living with my wife kid on the way so it was not like I can live off of a thousand euros a month or something, or maybe I could, but I we had we we would have had to cut back quite a bit, and that always hurts. Cutting back always hurts. So there was a specific, let's say, living standard that needed to be supported, and it took me quite a while to finish my job for multiple reasons or to quit my job. I was employed at Stripe at a time, and. They pay very well. It's a fantastic company, in my opinion. I, I I was learning so much. So this was a very big thing. And I was proud to work at Stripe as well. So there, there was just so many factors that went into 
the decision. And I quit when I wasn't able to just handle it anymore. There were thousands of users already. There were already there was already a team. Like we were already way beyond 20k MRR uh, when I started to quit. So way beyond ramen profitability. And I quit not because I thought now is the right time, but I quit because I just couldn't do both anymore, mentally and physically. It was too taxing on everything else and on myself. And I realized in a moment of reflection in December, like right around this time, two years ago, mm -hmm. or yeah, two years ago, that uh, I had to change something. Either I shut it down or um, I take the plunge. I, I take the jump and, and try it. So basically the next workday I quit. And then it took okay. a, a little, a few more months because of uh, in Germany, you have like three, four months notice period. So mm -hmm. it took a few more months. So in summer 2022, I had my first day full-time at my own company with being employee number five. So okay. yeah, it took, <laughs> took a little bit of time. All right. Super fun. I, I, I really like that story. But uh, also you were bootstrapped from day one, like I mentioned before, yes. but you decided to stay bootstrapped, even though, you know, for, for fintech projects, it's usually not the case. Like if, if mm -hmm. they, they can be scaled with money, people prefer to, to go after the VC funding. So what was the decision? Yeah. Like how, what did you base your decision on to keep on going as a bootstrap company? Uh, yeah. So I, there are multiple factors to this as well. Of course, first of all, let's talk about the obvious one, which is founder return. Uh, so mm -hmm. why do you want to go VC? Why do you want to go big? And at the end of the day, most founders try at least, um, at least in my perception, most founders think it's the way to go and they have to make it big. And I think the founder return is the same. If you have a 10 million, if, if you can build a $10 million or 10 million company and you own a hundred percent of it, and then you sell it, you have the same return as if you have a hundred million company and 10% of it, but one is much more likely than the other. And I think building a small company is so much more likely to succeed. If, if you are able to, to let's say build a company to 3 million ARR, 3 million revenue per year. You have a very, very, you have a company that can change your life as a founder from the cash flow, from an exit, whatever, it doesn't matter. But this, this will be a company that changes your life for the better. At least you can design it this way, but it will fail in a VC case because it, it's not enough return for the VC. So I don't like, or I disagreed with the concept of building something that people want, that generates revenue, that could be profitable, could be successful, but having it fail because there are some people that expect a higher return. I just didn't like that concept at all. Then the freedom part, I don't like, other, like I see these stories where people are pushed out, where founders are pushed out from investors, from a board, open AI, good example just now, yeah. like all, all these things, I'm... I don't like that at all. I want to be in control. I want to be in the driver's seat of my own destiny, basically. And if there are other people that have more say than I have in my own company, then I'm just an, then I'm just employed again with a different title. And uh, I don't do the hustle for being employed again. So I, I wouldn't rule out investors at the end of the day. But I mean, there are great examples of founders who still have, have control. But yeah, I... At the end of the day, I'm building a company because I think I can do it in a certain way. And if I fail, that's fine. I will learn, try again. So I, I like to be in the driver's seat if I'm going down that route. 
And the, the third reason is, is it necessary or not? For some companies like Stripe is a good example. If you build a payment company, you absolutely need VC funding, uh, funding because you can't just build it on your own and you need enterprise sales and you have long sales plans, things like that. So it's a huge thing with regulation and everything. So you need to be funded and that's fine. But most companies don't. Most companies don't need funding to get started or at least to validate the business which is a much better way, by the way, um, a much better position to be in when you race, um, if you have already validated the business and have product market fit and things like that. And um, there, there's the reason that founders don't have all the skills required to move the business to a product market fit stage. And I was arrogant enough to think I can program. I'm okay with, like, I think I'm okay with creating user experience, good user experience. And there is stuff I have to learn, marketing, sales. I was in management before. So building a team of, of course, you always have to learn stuff, but I was willing to learn all of that. I was willing to, you know, to wear many hats and at the end of the day, don't program anymore, but do everything that is required. And uh, so I thought I, I should be able, I should be able to acquire all the skills during that to bring it to market, create an MVP and validate uh, and validate the idea. So there was no reason to take external funding, except for getting more people on board before I even knew it, it would work. So I, I like the sustainable, healthy way of growing a company, growing a product, um, et cetera, than the all in or, or fail. That is, mm. I don't like that. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Perfect. Uh, well, I, I want to come back a little bit to, to what you said at the beginning. You said you were building a product for yourself, for your own uh, pains, and then you just kind of opened it and people started coming. And that's, uh, you know, it sounds incredible, <laughs> right? An overnight success almost. But that step, right, from zero to one, usually is the hardest, right? Where do you start? Like, where do you get those people who open the, uh, who find your, your tool in the first place? So what was it for you? What was the magic last step to your success? Yeah, obviously it's not build it and they will come. That, that does not happen. happen. Uh, it's also something I would advise any founder to take care of marketing even before you start building. Not necessarily something I, I did like that, but I tried. So I shared the journey of building like many indie hackers do, which attracted a few, like let's say 10 uh, interested people who, who would try this want to try this but at the end of the day i i try to find out during launch during the launch phase where is my target customer base hanging out these are and i niche down quite a bit i said i didn't say all of the people that want to invest are my market i said i want an mvp and in this niche i want to be good so this is basically investors that invest in stock only in Germany, only from a specific bank, in this case, Comdirect. Why? Because I was there and I supported the import of their data um, and only that. And where do their customers basically hang out? So I, I, I targeted very, very specific, also only in Euro and, and things like that. I limited down all of the dimensions, how you could grow it so I can build it in three months, basically. And then I wondered where they hang out. And there are forums on the internet for stocks, German forums. The bank has their own forum, community forum. Reddit, there is a subreddit for German finance. And I went into all those and, and posted, hey, I'm Sumit. I, 
I had this problem. I built a solution and I would love to, to uh, know what you think about it. So I didn't try to sell anything. There was no paid version at the time. And I simply wanted feedback. And then I get a few hundred uh, signups and they tried it. They liked it. I got a lot of feedback. Um, obviously, some didn't like it, but uh, yeah. And then I iterated on that feedback. And two months later, I um, I just added a pro feature and a subscription price and checked if anybody would be willing to pay for it. And when the first euro came in, that was the, the magic moment where I thought, there could be could be a business there because I didn't know if people would be willing to pay for this kind of product. Right. Um, yeah, and since since then it started to grow, and I, I basically added. I, I I'm working very close. We the whole team is working very close with the community, and adding what they need, um, and and listening to customer feedback every day. It's um, yeah, it's it's really nice to work so closely with the customers. Right, right. I think that that's usually like the the hack, so-called, right, to to actually figure out what, what the product should be. But uh, you also had a really interesting case of growing your brand awareness and getting you new customers and users. It was working with influencers. And when I first learned about that, I was like, okay, that's, that's really interesting. And, and they weren't affiliates too. So... Can you elaborate a little bit? What was the strategy there and how did you come up with it in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit unique to this product, but uh, I thought about how, how do I get new customers in? Ob obviously there are the classical marketing ways, but I'm not an expert in marketing at all. And I would say if I try SEO, if I try paid ads and things like that, I will spend a lot of energy time that was the most valuable resource at the time and money and i don't know if i can compete uh, with different fintechs uh, that are b2c fintechs that are targeted at the same audience and things like that so i thought there is an there is there are active conversations going on in the german community probably in every country about investing what stocks do you invest in what what do you do and there are influencers that show their portfolios they show screenshots of other tracking tools that are there, they show screenshots of their bank bank um, portfolio, the online banking of their portfolios and, and things like that. And that's how they facilitate conversation and show what they do. So I thought if I'm able to create a tool that is the best for influencers, not only to use themselves as, as users and track their portfolios across banks and things like that, but also for them to share with their audience, then they will share my tool. They will they will be the the ones that that spread basically the tool. Because if an influencer, um, usually if they show a screenshot of I don't know just a list of the stocks that they own, and it looks nice and um, it's not a typical banking UI, people will ask, "Hey, what's the tool you're using?" And th that's basically what I thought will enable my early growth. So I built sharing into it. You can create a portfolio, you can plug all your data in, and then you can simply say, I want to share it in relative mode. In relative mode, that means you only see percentages and all absolute values are hidden. So you don't see you have 50,000 euros, you only see you have 10% performance in this time frame and so on. And the absolute way where you see everything. So um, you, you share everything. Those two modes and um, or you have your portfolio private. That's also, that's the default, of course. 
and it worked great. Uh, influencers started using it. Um, they asked, they started to use the links in their descriptions, send it to their users, and it started facilitating online conversations about wealth tracking, wealth building, uh, investing, and so on. And uh, yeah, so I I basically ignored marketing the first two years because of that, and it, it went very well. But it's also very unique to this product. It's not necessarily something you can repeat for every business. This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com course rewardful.com slash course and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Right. Okay. Uh, well, then you started going a bit more into classical, let's say, marketing, right? You started uh, building your SEO strategy and, and content marketing. So what made you do that? Did anything change? Did you decide that, you know, in order to scale, you just needed to be out there and you needed to be able to find Paquette also on Google and whatnot, or was there other reason? And how did you start it? And uh, what are the results now? Yeah. So at, at some point <clears throat> growth, I mean, growth was always good when big influencers start to, um, you know, to promote it or use it. Obviously at some point we started to introduce an affiliate program. When we start, when we saw big influencers just using it, I was just reaching out and say, Hey, thank you for using it. That's awesome. Hey, how about we, you know, make an affiliate deal. So you also get a, get a cut and things like that. So that's how the first affiliate partnerships started. But at some point growth or I, I felt dependent on favors kind of, you know, it was more like the affiliate. I don't know if the affiliate commission was that big, but, but other companies came in. There were copycats, competitors starting and things like that. And they raised VC funding. So they had a lot of money and they threw it on the influencers. So I basically was dependent okay. on the goodwill kind of of influencers. And I thought a business needs, if a business is validated, it needs not only to show that the business model works and there is money coming in and it's profitable, but also that you can grow. You have a self-controlling customer acquisition cost. And I wanted to be able to have, or let's put it this way, the, the VC case would be, if I would go to a VC and say, look, this is our customer acquisition strategy. I know that if you give me a million now, I can return 5 million in three years or whatever. So I, I wanted a clear strategy where I can throw money at it and grow it um, or at least control it myself to with some lever to know I can get more customers. And the influencer game was not it because, uh, yeah, Paquette was basically known 
and we needed a better way, a more self, a, a way that we we control to to gain new customers. So that's why when I started to look into classical classical marketing, I mean influencer marketing is not that um, uh, <laughs> not that of an invention. Like it's not special at all. Everyone can do it. But yeah, I, I looked into classical marketing. I hired someone for the team uh, for marketing, and then we went into the usual stuff. Um, it's a freemium tool, so obviously email is a big factor. Uh, we started with SEO um, with the full knowledge that this will be a long-term thing. So we just said, okay, let's do every week we will do something for SEO. Um, that could be blog posts, that could be programmatic SEO, etc. So we, we, we started that in 2022 summer, I think, maybe, or Q1, Q2, something sometime around that. And um, we didn't do paid ads at the time. We do now, but uh, we we didn't start with that in the beginning. And we started to do social media. So our social media channels were basically just me, you know, every now and then posting something. But we hired someone for social media, took the community more seriously. And by now we also have a, a YouTube channel that is, I would say, relatively successful. It's not successful in the sense of it's a big YouTube channel and you earn money with it. But um, we do have a, a live stream every Friday, a Friday fireside, where I talk about basically everything behind the curtain of, of Paquette, uh, what we are doing. I, I show sneak peeks. We talk about the market. We look at portfolios, things like that. And it's watched a few thousand times, which is a success in my book. And the YouTube channel is growing as well. So yeah, we did many things. And what, what are the results so far? I mean, because we are a freemium tool, I would say for all freemium tools, the free version is kind of the biggest marketing lever. People tr can try it out. And once they are in, once they try it out, you have a lot of, um, you have a lot of time to upsell them, to convince them or show them that the pro version, the next version, the first paid plan might be beneficial to them. So that is one big factor. Email works great. SEO works great, uh, by now at least. Yeah. And what doesn't work that great is paid ads. So we tried that. We still try a little bit with pretty low budget, but it's highly competitive, of course. And it's hard to track. It's really hard. like tracking is the most difficult part when you want to comply to the EU cookie laws and things like that and, and tracking laws. So it's really hard to make that profitable and you know be certain of it like yeah, from a tracking perspective. And there are a few other things we try out, but... Um, SEO, email, and and the freemium model are the the big ones that that we you know I think work great for us and that we will continue to focus on. Right, right. We were talking with with Hendrik Lenners, is the founder of Unlock Growth uh, in Berlin, and uh, yeah, we were reminiscing about like it's not 2016 any longer. Like you kind of track all the data, like <laughs> those were the golden days. Right. And yeah. now truly, yeah. If you, if you do any ads, it's just, it's a bit more pain than, than anything else, but yeah. So, okay. So you leverage the product led growth, right. And you're in B2C, but I also know that you're gradually moving to, to B2B. And could you maybe talk a little bit about the way you're doing it and if you're adding to it any kind of sales-led motions or changing the product or your approach to customer acquisition in any way at all? 
Yeah, so this is super early. Uh, we are a B2C product and a B2C company, but I wouldn't necessarily say that we are moving to B2B, but including it in our inner product portfolio. So right. it's not that we want to move away from B2C or something. So the first thing I, I always look at is, do we have assets that are not monetized yet? In, you know, like we are on our way to a million ARR. Hopefully we will reach this this year, maybe in January, something like this. And I'm thinking about what is required to go to 10 million ARR. That's like every now and then I'm trying to, you know, build the bigger picture and, and look at how we could go there. And I don't think the uh, staying in our niche would be that. There are a lot of growth opportunities. We could internationalize. We could, you know, go into a lot of different assets. We could also go into B2B. We could go more into the tech infrastructure space. Like there is a lot of um, possibilities where we where we could go. But um, as a bootstrapper, obviously, I'm looking for the uh, low risk, high return stuff first, or the, at least the things that I can try fast. And if we have an asset and I can, you know, without without having the team to build something for six months, I can try out if that works simply packaging our tool differently and going into B2B, uh, that is an easy or a, a low um, a low effort thing that we can try. So um, that's why we have business plans right now. We saw that companies are using Parquet already in the private version, basically. So we said, okay, let's expose ourselves to businesses more by um, offering business plans, by offering dedicated support for them, so we can talk to them and see how they use it, what like what do they have different requirements, what makes it different, and then we can see if it's worth it or not. So this is still something we are exploring. Uh, there are more ideas we have, but um, obviously the potential in the B2B space is far bigger than in the B2C space. So it would be foolish not to try it. I don't know if this will be something that is bigger than the B2C part in the future or if it's, you know, 50-50 or whatever. I, I have no idea, but uh, definitely something we are trying. And so far, uh, it looks promising, but also, obviously, there are, I mean, there are a few things you need to do differently, right? You have sales now instead of marketing. Um, you have much more direct calls you need to be in you know some sales calls or customer calls um yeah so it, it's a different game and i think everybody knows who who knows the difference between b2b and b2c so there are a few things you need to do differently but yeah as a bootstrapper again we try to to look at the low-hanging fruits first and see yeah. if they if if you can do something there that's worth it all right so it seems like you again started from you know, talking with the customer, seeing like what they want and what what you could do to them, what kind of value you could bring, and then start building it. Okay, exactly. That makes sense. All right, perfect. Okay, so I've got a few more questions for you. So first of all, you're a solo founder, uh, right? And this has been also a huge topic on the podcast, right? And I reached out first because of the Code Talks conference. Uh, I know you were a guest, a speaker there before. So there is a community, very kind of nerdy, techy community out there. And you said that you are building your own community. But what about, you know, other founders or like, how are you handling 
just the fact that you're a solo founder, do you try to reach out to others? Uh, is there support in the indie hacker community? Or, you know, maybe you're just fine. Um, so before I even started, I was following, you know, some indie hackers that I think everybody knows, Peter Levels and, and these people, um, and read founder stories and things like that. And I wanted to balance the exposure to the ways of how people build companies. There are the news with the big VC announcements, you know, we raised 10 million, blah, blah, blah. And there are indie hackers on Twitter that share what they are doing in like an open startup fashion. And I learned so much from them that and, and got motivated to even try bootstrapping, to try it myself, etc., and and go for this like minimal approach. And even if it's a side project that does 500 euros or 5,000 euros a month, it would still be great for me. I could still invest more. It would still, you know, put like, put me on a path to a little bit more freedom. So I learned so much from them that I thought I can give back if I share my journey from the beginning. Like, and, and that's what I did via YouTube, via Twitter. I shared every win, every failure, what I'm building, the strategies behind it, etc. So I was very, very open with all of that. And this obviously attracted other founders who try the same, uh, people who are in the same stage as me in the journey or earlier and try to get there. Uh, so it, there was a natural progression in me sharing and, and building kind of a, an audience a little bit at least on Twitter. And then I started a German podcast to talk about the experiences that I had after like two years of building it. And I tried other projects as well. So I'm sharing everything that I learned via the podcast. So yes, I'm talking a lot to founders and I love that. It motivates me a lot. And if some became friends here in Hamburg, um, and if we meet and we talk about their companies or my company or um, projects or problems or whatever, I always come out more motivated. I always come out with uh, more insights and th things like that. So I think this is crucial for any founder because it's a really tough journey and anything that motivates you Anything that gives you inspiration, new angles of how to approach stuff is great. Could be consuming this this podcast here, could be reading on Twitter from other founders, could be meeting founders, whatever. So I try to, like I even have, it's not a joke, I have a reminder that comes up every month or every two months in my to-do list app that says, surround yourself with people you look up to and then a list of these people. So, and when this comes up, I'm I'm reaching out to someone and asking if we can meet next week or if we can have a phone call or things like that, because I know that it's good for me and, and my motivation. Being a solo founder in general, would I wish to have a co-founder? Sometimes yes. So if I meet, you know, the Charlie Munger of me being Warren Buffett or whatever, I would love to have or meet someone I can build companies for the rest of my life with, you know, th this kind of thing. I'm, I, uh, if people find that, I'm very happy for them and, and jealous or envy or whatever you call it, but I would love to have that as well. But I'm also someone who doesn't like to be dependent on other people. And I would never f start a company with someone I don't know, because it's like a marriage. You spend more time with them than anyone else uh, for the next 10 years. And um, I need to know them, trust them. And if I'm going into a company with the desire to make it big or make it successful and things like that, I don't want to have it like to have it fail because of a disagreement. And mo 
I don't have statistics on this, but at least from what I hear, a lot of startups, is, if not all, fail because of like some founder disagreement. And if I see companies that have three founders, four founders, things like that, I'm always like, I'm That's skeptical of that. Yeah. yeah, I'm very skeptical. And obviously there are things that work very well, but um, I didn't want to take that risk. Except obviously if I start a company and I absolutely need that. If I couldn't program, I would need a CTO. It, like you, 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 there is no point in creating a business with a technical product and not having a CTO um, as a founder. So if I couldn't program, I would, I would try to find a CTO. If I would go B2B, if I would have, if I would create a new company and that is completely B2B, either I accept that I have to do sales or if I, if I go into a very specific niche, just to any example, let's say I'm building a company that does software for tax stuff. I should have an accountant or a um, tax advisor or someone like this as a co-founder, I think, uh, that knows the industry very well. I, I, maybe it's not necessary, but at least I would think about it and see if I could find someone or know someone and, and things like that. But if I can do it alone, um, I would try that first because I'm just, I don't know how to say that, but I don't like the risk of a company that you build and that might be successful fail because of founder disagreement. Yeah. yeah, it's a stupid reason, in my opinion, to have to. Yeah, that's fit. true. That's true. That would be a bummer. But that's a great tip to like have a reminder, like go out there. Don't just don't just sit in your bubble. Find people that are I don't know one step further or even at the same stage, but just like talk to them, see see what they're uh, doing or building or whatever. Well. That said, you know, hopefully you get a reminder in, in May because we are doing <laughs> we're doing an event with SaaS Group. So you're warmly welcome there. There will be a lot of super exciting founders there. You'll, you'll have a lot to talk about. Okay, so just a couple more questions. First one is, so far, what has been the biggest win and the biggest failure? Or maybe, you know, not a failure, but a challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> biggest win, you know, it's tough because the goalpost always changes when, when things grow. But if I, if I uh, try to think back, the first thing was obviously first revenue. It was for me the first time I built a side project with the clear goal of making at least some money and trying this. And when the first revenue came in, first euro, first five euros and the first few customers, that was a, I don't know, a moment of enlightenment. Let's put it this way, because you, you you can build something on your own. You just need a laptop, internet. You can build something to make a side income or whatever and sell stuff on the internet. This obviously, uh, every, everyone knows that, but to make it happen, uh, that was a true win for me. And the biggest fail I think was to ignore marketing for two years. It's not that it hurt Paquette. I think maybe, uh, I mean, there might be opportunity costs there probably, but I think I would do it differently in, in the next one. Let's put it this way. If I would start again, I would have this in mind immediately. And I even think by now that doing marketing before and trying to find the customers and I mean, getting them on an email list and things like that is already validating the idea even before you start building. And if you can't do that, then how would you do it if you have the product? So you, you, you have to be able to create a landing page that compels people to put their email in. And, and, you know, just as a basic thing. So I would start this before. So, yeah, uh, I think this is the biggest fail. There are a few more, I would say not biggest, 
but small ones with mm-hmm. uh, employees building a team and things like that. But yeah, uh, so just so I don't leave people hanging. One thing I can totally recommend if you start building a team, if you look at people to join your team are two things. First of all, always put in writing exactly the agreement you have, because there will be people, if you start slow and share everything, people will be reaching out and offering help, which is fantastic. But if you just accept the help and they help for free or whatever, and things become successful, expectations grow. And if you don't talk about them, then um, at some point this will crash because uh, uh, expectations are totally different. And I had this at least with one person and I regret that. And I will not, uh, I, I will never invite someone to work with me if we are not made perfectly clear what is in for them, what is in for me and how do we part ways and things like that. Um, and the other one is to simply listen to your gut. If you talk to a person and you have a bad gut feeling, there is usually a reason if you, if you, even if you can't pinpoint it, um, it doesn't matter how talented they are. If you have a gut feeling, a bad gut feeling, just, just don't do it. You know, especially if it's the first person or the first five people, uh, such a small team, if you have one person that, that is not, that doesn't fit, it, it can break down the entire team. So it was not yeah. that I had a very bad experience with this, but it, it's something I learned along the way. Let's put it this way. Right, right. Something you learn to trust after a while. I think I've read somewhere that HR managers actually need only like 40 seconds to assess a person and see like if it's a good fit for the company and company culture. So uh, I guess, well, you can call that gut feeling, right? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, obviously there is a lot of bias in there. And I remember from Stripe, you know, the trainings that I had in interviews to not get you know, be biased and not uh, do a lot of small talk and, and all of this stuff. So obviously, um, initial impressions can be wrong. That I think is a given. But on the other hand, if you are a one if you are a one person team and you hire your first person, you are not. In my opinion, you are you don't owe anyone to you know, assess everything and ignore your biases and all of that, that HR has to do with a 5,000 people company. You are one person and you are searching for someone you can spend eight hours, 10 hours a day with to build something. You, you better fit very well. So in this case, I think, you know, if you have a bad feeling, you have a bad feeling and you shouldn't feel guilty to maybe say no to someone, even if it's just a feeling or something and you can't directly pinpoint it. After all, it's, it's your project and the team is too small to ignore or, you know, right. to work without each other or something like this. This might have, this changes with 20 people and things like that. But in the beginning, mm. I think it's super important. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. All right. And the last question it's for hack. Right. If you can share mm-hmm. a hack, well, I guess you kind of kind of shared it uh, right now with the team and with finding your product market fit and, and your awesome strategy with the influencers. But uh, maybe you have something else, maybe for sustainable growth, maybe the way to you know break into SEO, even if you know you haven't been doing it from the very beginning. You know how to? Is it even possible to do that? So yeah, anything that helped you immensely that was maybe not that conventional 
Yeah, there are two things that I, I think I can share that are not conventional. But for this SEO part, because you asked it, I can at least give one tip uh, when getting uh, started sure. with it. And that is, so what, what we try to do is not like, to this day, we don't try to convert the traffic. The only thing we focused on is, do we fulfill search intent? So if people look for Apple dividend March 2024, and they arrive at a site of ours, are we delivering what they are looking for? That is the only thing we cared about. We don't even, again, we don't even try to convert the traffic until now. We said, once we have this threshold, so much traffic via Google, then we will try to. So that I can, I can recommend. Uh, it, it sounds boring, but that is, I think, the best way to also, there, there's a lot of stuff changing in search. And I'm not, yeah. you know, an algorithm expert or something like this, but that's the, also the biggest factor for Google. If you deliver search intent, if people find what they are looking for. So that was what we were focusing on. And so far it, it really works well. Okay. But other hacks, yeah. um, I, I don't think these are, you know, revolutionary or something, but from talking to customers, I, uh, sorry, talking to founders, I know that not a lot of founders consider it or I don't know, execute it at least. And that is one thing, especially true for technical founders, only solve problems when they hurt. If you're bootstrapped, time and energy and, you know, focus is the biggest thing you you need to have. Um, and if you don't have a customer, don't try to solve international invoice, blah, 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 automation or something like this. Ignore it. Write manual invoices. Um, as long as possible until you write 10 invoices a day and it blocks an hour for you. Then you can start to automate it. Then you have a luxury problem to solve and to automate. So ignore all of the, the, those problems. I didn't have, for example, when we started Paquette or when I started Paquette, there was no customer can change their email. There was no customer deletion button, account deletion button. They can reach out via email. That's totally fine. And you can ask them why. And once you have 50 emails of uh, users that want to delete their accounts per day, then either you are very big and you can uh, you can solve it or you have a massive problem, then you better find out what the problem is. So don't solve these problems in the beginning, right? Uh, just the absolute necessary thing to validate the business. All the other stuff can wait. And the second is I'm a fan of hyper localizing um, or at least hyper niche. So again, if you're bootstrapping, what do you want to be? A small fish in a huge market, huge pond where basically you are just a feature for a larger player or do you want to be the best and dominate a small niche? And I'm a fan of dominating the small niche, especially because those niches are still like multi-million dollar markets. So for us, we still don't have an English version of the website. That's why you had to ask me what uh, what the correct translation is of, of yes. our um, product and focus. And the reason is, if we start to um, create an English version, I have to support international banks, international taxes, because these are investors. They need to know how many taxes they pay. I need to support how their federal tax administration calculates the taxes you pay on dividends and realized gains and things like that. So in putting out an English version comes with the expectation that we support the user's unique, let's say, finance um, environment. And that comes with a huge uh, workload and cost and things we might not be able to do. So that's why we focus on 
the German market, Dach, uh, Switzerland, Austria, and Germany, because we know the the environment there, and it's big enough to you know to go there. Um, we still have a lot of growth ahead of us. The market is still there that we can um, gain more traction. So I think being the perfect solution for a small number of people is better than being an okay solution for a larger number of people. And again, especially if you bootstrap, I think picking your niche and going even further in is a very good way to start. You can always expand the niche later, as we did. We support now all of the currencies. We support not only stocks, but ETFs, uh, cash, crypto. Of you, we, we will build more assets as well. We will build all of the assets at some point. So you can always go into different dimensions. We will also internationalize at some point. But uh I mean, we have over three years in now and we still don't have an English version. And people think right. I'm crazy. And I'm no, I'm not crazy. I, I want to be the best solution for the German market until we can serve another market very well. So I, that is something I think most founders, they feel like handcuffing themselves or handicapping mm -hmm. themselves or something. But I think it's a strength if you're bootstrapped. If you are VC funded, then obviously VCs expect the high returns and you need to dominate, you know, the, all, all, the, all of the markets. Uh, so it's yeah. a different PR game, let's put it this way. But um, yeah, for bootstrappers, That's I would true. totally recommend it. Okay, perfect. So, all right. Uh, I really like those hacks. I will add them to to the rest of them that you shared today. I think uh, they will uh, make a great case for, for bootstrappers like you. Uh, so thank you, Sumit. I mean, uh, it's been a great conversation. I've, I've learned a lot about you, about Paquette, about the way you do it uh, successfully and excited to see uh, where you're at in May, hopefully. Uh, maybe then in <laughs> code talks, yes, fingers crossed in fall. Uh, so yeah, happy to you know to support you guys in any way and uh, do an episode again sometime. Thanks, I would love to, and looking forward to code talks. Uh, yeah, thank you for the invitation, Anna. Sure, anytime, Sumit, and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.